Welcome to episode two of the Let's Sip podcast, the podcast where we pontificate on all things craft beer. I'm your host, Brandon E. Gaylor. On this episode, we're going to get a little more educational with the beer world. We're going to discuss some common misconceptions, uh, some conceptions, and then go dive a little bit deeper into recent beer trends. So let's get started with the, the educational portion of our program. Many a times when somebody walks into a tap room of a local brewery or a local establishment, their first question to the purveyor behind the counter is going to be, do you serve food? While quite an understandable question, and the bartenders usually hand such uh, inquiries with grace and kindness, uh, it's quite a... uh, it's kind of an odd question to ask of that of a tap room. By definition, a brewery tap room is a room that will consist, of course, of taps that serve the brewery, the brewery's product or the beer that is produced right there on site. However, a tap room does not include a kitchen or food of any kind. Uh, what many might be thinking of when they think of a uh, such a place that's also going to serve food is a brew pub. That is the main difference between a brewery and a tap room. A brew pub is going to be a place that brews beer, but at the same time is equally focused on their kitchen and the offerings coming out of that kitchen, uh, i.e., of course, food. So a brew pub is definitely going to be more of the restaurant slash beer type of establishment. A brewery tap room is going to be merely the room where their beer is tapped and it is uh, sampled out for on-site consumption of what they've produced in-house. A third type of such a uh, place but doesn't include the brewery portion at all would be what what is referred to as a gastropub. A gastropub might have a large focus on craft beer and different types of beer, but they do not produce any sort of beer on site. But they do have food. So a couple of quick ways to uh, interpret these conventions would be if you see pub, think of grub. Uh, If you see tap room, you better order in soon. Another interesting common misconception when it comes to the world of beer is cold beer versus warm beer. What I mean by that is somebody's going to walk into their local uh, off-premises account, i.e. a grocery store or a liquor store or a convenience store, and they're going to want their product in a specific uh, temperature, whether that be uh, might be off the warm shelf or it might be out of the coolers. Uh, usually if somebody's looking to grab something out of the cooler, it's going to be consumed rather quickly. Maybe they're bringing it to a party or uh, somebody else's house, or perhaps they're just looking to uh, open one right where they get home and stick the rest in the fridge. Now, the other, there's the other that uh, doesn't really care what temperature it's at. Maybe they're not. They're just going to buy their uh, allocated beer for their weekly consumption, or uh, they're just running out to the store to make other purchases as well and they're not going to be consuming their beer right away so they don't care if it's off the warm shelf. Then there's a third group that uh, prefers to get their beer off the warm shelf because they believe that if the beer's cold and it's going to get warm when they don't consume it or don't stick into the fridge right away that it's going to go bad. 
This is a much a common misconception. Uh, this temperature, for the most part, does not is not going to affect the final product or uh, the finished version of the beer that has been produ produced at the brewery. Basically, the main thing that's going to affect the final taste of uh, the beer product is uh, light. If anybody has consumed a Corona lately, and I'm not picking on Corona by any means, you know that when you crack open a bottle of Corona, one of the first things that's going to hit you, especially if you put the bottle up to your nose and uh, take a little whiff of the beer, is a rather skunky, skunky smell coming from the bottle. This skunky smell is directly related to the type of bottle that the Corona comes in. Corona comes in a totally clear bottle. This is in uh, sharp contrast to many other macro beers like, say, Miller Lite, Budweiser, or Bud Light, uh, in the fact that those beers come in bottles that are dark brown. Corona is in a clear glass bottle which means light is going to affect that beer almost instantly once the beer enters the bottle on the bottling line. This light is what is going to give Corona that uh, skunky aroma and a little bit of that skunky taste. If the beer was in a dark, darker brown glass bottle, uh, a good portion of that light would be uh, reflected and kept out of that beer and it wouldn't be affecting the beer quite as much, which is the reason for dark brown bottles. Uh, that's the best way to keep, aside from cans or some other sort of packaging, that is the best way to keep the light at bay. It's not perfection, but it's it's much greater than a pure, uh, pure glass bottle. Uh, another brewery that's going to have a uh, little bit of the same type of issue is Heineken, because Heinekens are not in dark brown bottles either. They are in a green bottle, which uh, it, it's worse than brown, but not quite as bad as a clear glass bottle. I happened to open a Heineken the other day, and I was uh, surprised by uh, how quickly that that uh, bit of that skunky aroma hit my nostrils. Uh, even when I, considering I didn't hold the uh, bottle up to my nose, the bottle was probably a good maybe two feet away from my nose. But yet I was still able to pick up on that skunky, uh, skunky air or skunky aroma leaving the bottle rather quickly. So light is by far our biggest culprit when it comes to uh, the aff affectation of the final product uh, in our bottles and cans. But uh, the, the, second, the second one that might is going to have the most effect is going to be time, of course. Uh, and macro, macro lagers can certainly go bad, but um, it's not often as easy to detect such issues as it is with like a hoppier beer. Uh, these are reasons why beer does have expiration date. It is a perishable product. It is a perishable item. It should be treated just as much uh, in perishability as it would be uh, any other food. It might not uh, expired beer isn't tends isn't really going to get you sick. Uh, you're not tending to uh, get food poisoning or anything else else like that by drinking bad beer. But uh, if you're going to drink beer past expiration date, there's a good chance it's not going to taste nearly the same as it should when it was first produced. 
this is especially relevant in uh, hoppy beers where um, the hop aroma is usually gone, so you're losing all that great aroma. Uh, the hoppy bitterness tends to fade, and especially in a pale ale or IPA, you're kind of left with a uh, papery taste uh, once the beer kind of approaches its expiration date. So light and time are two of the biggest influencers when it comes to uh, removing beer from its purest form. So what what we'll make what's a make of this issue with temperature and people wanting beer uh, that's cold to remain cold and buying beer warm because uh, they're afraid that the the other the refrigerated beer is going to warm and go bad. Well, speaking from somebody with experience who has taken beer out of coolers, um, walked great distances in the hot heat of summer, put them back in the cooler, consumed them again and again, went from warm to cold and warm to cold again with several different types of beer, I can honestly say that uh, this temperature change has had no influence on the final product. People believe that these temperature changes are the things that are uh, affecting the taste of their beer or getting it to be skunky, uh, but this is just not the case. Skunkiness is going to come, of course, like I said, from the light, uh, which is why you're going to definitely notice skunkiness in products such as Corona or Heineken. The only thing that's really going to affect beer uh, is uh, that has anything to do with potentially with light as if it's uh, left out at a really hot temperature baking in the sun or something to that effect. The beer was going to get really warm in the hot, hot sun. That might make a difference. But um, buying a beer out of the fridge at from the cooler at your local liquor store and bringing it home and letting it sit in your garage because you have no room in the fridge is not going to affect the taste of the final product. Unless, of course, you leave it out there for six months and then the beer is past its expiration date. That might make a difference. If you're still on the fence about this particular discussion, think of it this way. A brewery is going to brew their beer. They're going to uh, produce the wort or the uh, raw mixture of hops and grains and any other adjuncts that might be added to that product. Um, then they're going to add yeast to it. The beer is going to ferment uh, for about two weeks or longer, depending on what the style is. And then it's going to be transferred to a bright tank, uh, where it's either going to be left to settle or it's going to be filtered uh, to uh, produce a crystal clear final product and in the case of macro beers often take some of that best stuff that's going to add flavor and distinction to your beer and flush it down the drain but when these beers are hitting the bright tanks they're going to be chilled to a pretty cool temperature it's then either going to be sent to kegs uh, perhaps to a holding tank to be served or to a canning or bottling line uh, this cold beer is then going to be packaged up. It's then going to get warm again. It's going to be sent to a distributor. Um, oftentimes the distributor is not going to hold this product in a cooler waiting to be sent out to the store. It's going to be sitting in a warehouse. Uh, unless 
Uh, it's less it's a small local microbrewery where uh, the packaging goes straight from uh, a cooler where they're storing it in to their refrigerated truck where they, uh, if they're self-distributing, they'll deliver it to you on site. Uh, but 90% of the time, it's going to sit in a distributor's warehouse in the heat, and it's then going to be sent to the grocery store or the liquor store where it's going to be uh, brought into the cooler or out on the floor. So basically, it's gotten really cold again in the bright tank to go warm again in the distributor's warehouse to going cold again at the store's cooler. Therefore, the beer has already gone from cold to warm to cold again. So if that has not affected the final product or if you don't notice it that when you bought that beer out of the cooler and drank it and it hasn't affected its final uh, final taste, then you can come to a reasonable conclusion that the temperature changes have nothing to do with the quality and taste of the final product. Sometimes these explanations of logic and reason work out, and sometimes they don't. People still just refuse to believe, and uh, they won't buy a beer unless it happens to be um, warm or whatever preferred temperature they want it, because uh, they will tend to continue to believe what they want to believe. But we do what we can to try to educate and spread the word. I happen to be local to the Chicago area, and one of the trends that has been ongoing for the past several years is the desire for local beer. Uh, most recently, uh, some publication established the top five cities by, uh, by volume of breweries or by the amount of breweries in the city. And I think Chicago fell at the uh, number five slot behind such cities as uh, Portland, Oregon, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Denver, Colorado. I believe the other one was uh, something like Cincinnati or something like that. I forget to be 100% honest with you, but it was a surprise. It was a city I wasn't quite expecting. Oh no, maybe it was Detroit, perhaps. It was something like that. It was a rather surprising uh, revelation when I come to think of uh, big beer cities and popular beer cities. So Chicago is high up on the list, that's for sure. And uh, one thing I have seen over the past several years when it comes to this trend is that um, national breweries or well-established breweries across the land, uh, some that may have started out on the West Coast, or many that did, uh, started to kind of slow down a little bit. Uh, we weren't seeing quite as much of them at our local stores and local bars. This again has directly related to the the uh, huge increase of breweries that have popped up in in this area. Uh, in, a, in a in a matter of year, I think Chicago went from like 110 breweries to 150 just within a year's time. So that's 40 new locations popping up in just 12 months. And this explosive growth has a, has a huge effect on what people are looking for when they come into their local establishment. They're always looking for the next hot release from that super small brewery who might be contracting out of another location. And they're just not willing to go to the shelves anymore to look like look for those some of those national staples 
uh, that used to be big at one point in time. Um, these new trends and changes have uh, coerced uh, breweries like Six Point to pull out of the market. Uh, breweries like Southern Tier, who used to be much higher, much have greater presence on the shelf and in coolers, um, have definitely scaled back, or you don't find them quite as much anymore, aside from uh, special releases every so often. For those working in the beer sales game, these have provided challenges of their own. Um, how do you, when you have plenty of beer that you can order in but won't sell, but then you have the really hot stuff, which you just can't get enough of and will fly off your shelves. Watching this trend develop over the past several years has been interesting, especially with the increase of breweries from across the country who want to expand out to the Chicago location or the Chicago area, um, increasing their distribution footprint. In times, in these times, it's been it's proven to be quite a challenge as much as it has been an opportunity. Uh, a few years ago, we saw the likes of Shorts and Odd Side Ales come into the market. Um, while these two particular uh, establishments have seemed to hold on okay, the uh, the hype and uh, prestige that has surrounded it at the uh, the onset of their uh, new Chicago venture has kind of slowly died out. They are not the only two recent entries in the Chicago market to. Uh, experience such a uh, such a roller coaster ride a recent uh, recent new entries such as Perrin Odell and even Cigar City have experienced uh, a little a little bit of uh, adjustment as they settled into the market uh, for a while everybody was uh, loving the fact that uh, Cigar City's High Lie RPA IPA was now available in Chicagoland but uh, it wore off rather quickly. Uh, people hyped Sun King for finally entering the Earth's Chicago market, only to uh, stifle yawns weeks later. And now you're hard-pressed to find Sun King beer on uh, the shelves of the biggest craft beer bars or biggest beer stores in the city. There's recently been rumors that even uh, Wicked Weed had been potentially looking for a Chicago sales rep at a potential entry into the market. While this isn't entirely surprising considering Wicked Weed was acquired by AB InBev, the conglomerate that owns the Anheuser-Busch line of products um, among, uh, among craft breweries such as Goose Island, Elysian, and Breckenridge. But... This still comes as a shock considering I feel like it's just the wrong time to be pushing into the Chicagoland market. While I have my thoughts about AB and they certainly don't need my perspective, um, they want to throw money away they can, but with, with the Chicagoland market and the way it's trending towards local, I would think twice about being a larger brewery from outside looking to push their way into the Chicagoland market. Uh, much of it is just becoming noise. People, people want what's local and they want what's hot. And uh, this is a trend that's been growing for the past few years. And at the moment, I don't see that looking to change anytime soon. 
as long as the beer growth stays consistent in the Chicagoland area and um, what's hot and what's new and new breweries keep popping up, um, there's going to be plenty of fresh local beer to be consumed all across uh, the Midwest here. So breweries outside, you may just want to rethink twice, hold off, um, rethink your plans and maybe look for that push down the line. But right now, you're just too late and uh, we've got it covered out here in Chicago. Well, while I certainly just, uh, uh, at least, well, I couldn't say heralded, but described the prevalence of local beer in the Chicagoland area, um, I still don't forget that there are many great breweries uh, that are producing some fine beer that you can get in Chicagoland, but, but uh, may not specifically be in the Chicagoland market. Uh, these are established players who have seen relatively solid growth, uh, who keep hanging in there in the uh, in the tough world of uh, local local competition and such. And uh, these are beers, these are breweries that are I'm always going to seek out when they produce a new beer, and I um, pretty much guarantee that I'm going to spend some money anytime they push out a new beer. So this is a little segment I like to call breweries that can always have my money. First up on this list will be um, Dogfish Head. Dogfish Head is always doing something unique, uh, interesting with their beers. Um, this has not changed since they first opened their doors. And they've seen recent growth in the last year when many greater, bigger, larger breweries have been taking hits. And uh, I think this is a, uh, a tribute to their quality uh, as well as their innovation, and um, I think they definitely deserve it. Uh, but one recent beer I had that kind of blew my mind was their uh, Liquid Truth Serum. Uh, this beer con con contains all four kinds of hops. These are not individual strains of hops, but the the method in which the way the hops are added to the beer. So uh, they used whole pellets. Or, I mean, I'm sorry. They used whole leaf hops. They used pellet hops. Uh, they used liquefied hops. And then they used uh, hop powder as well. And all four of these uh, hop deliveries and the uh, hop bevy of different hops used uh, come together to create an excellent IPA. Uh, it's an excellent aroma on this beer. And the uh, it definitely hark, they call it, a, they're calling it juicy and tropical, but uh, it harkens back to the days of a delicious traditional West Coast IPA as much as it does anything else. Um, kind of reminded me of uh, a Green Flash IPA, Rust in Peace Green, green Flash. And uh, it was just a great delicious beer. So having to get to try that again and, uh, was, was exceptional. And it just reminded me of the quality stuff that Dogfish Head is putting forth. Another brewery that can always have my money is Lagunitas, well, at least for the time being. Um, Lagunitas notoriously sold out to Heineken as well, so they are not traditionally a uh, independent craft brewer. Uh, but at the moment, they are still kind of allowed to operate independently. They haven't met, seen much influence um, from their corporate partner as of yet they can kind of do their own thing and their beer is still being produced at their own facilities Like you're not seeing a Lagunitas IPA being brewed out of a, a Heineken brewery 
And recently, Lagunitas has been putting out some solid uh, one-hitters or solid season seasonals. Um, I did not get to try the Cherry Jane before it sold out, but that's beer sold out like hotcakes, and I heard great things about it. Uh, they're now on a collaboration with Shorts uh, called Passion Grass. And uh, their most recent IPA, uh, and one coming in 12 packs and soon to be six packs, was the Super Cluster, which was a uh, delicious, delicious Citra IPA. Um, and they seem to be out of stock at that at the moment, which isn't surprising considering that was an extremely tasty beer. And I'm looking forward to uh, revisiting that as soon as the product comes back around. So Lagunita is always usually doing something very tasty. I love the way of their IPAs, and uh, I'll always go be going back to them anytime they release something new. As far as large breweries go, Stone, uh, Stone Brewing has always been high up on the list uh, in brewery size, but they're still doing big things. They're still uh, independently produced, and they kind of... Um, pioneered the 90-day shelf life on the majority of their packaged beers, uh, one that has kind of been emulated now by the likes of Surly, and um, even some other breweries are popping up to at least a 120-day shelf life on the majority of their products. But Stone set this bar very high to get uh, the most drinkability out of their beers, especially all their hoppy stuff coming down the line. And so I'm always looking to try anything, anything new that they're coming out with. Um, even with their newer IPAs, uh, like one uh, couple of the latest were the Exalted IPA and the uh, Fear Movie Lions, both of which featured um, the Locale Hop, which I don't know if I'm quite a fan of. Uh, this That's L-O-K-A-L. Um, but they're always doing something interesting. They're always looking to produce... Um, something tasty you know switch up on just their classic IPAs so uh, for, a, for a company that's done that many different IPAs and been around that long they're always looking to do something unique uh, fresh and offer a different taste profile on each of their beers so anytime they're coming out with something new I'm always looking to try and the uh, recent change from other Woot Stout to uh, Bombers to a six-pack of 12-ounce bottles uh, was an amazing way to go. Uh, the six-pack is a much greater value, even though it's priced at $16.99, but that's opposed to like 9 or $10 for the bomber. So Stone is just another one of the breweries that can have my money anytime they produce a new beer. On that note, that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Keep on drinking, and uh, we'll drink with you next time. Bye-bye.